0: Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. This is the 26th episode of Escape from Society, talking about November 2014. At the end of October, we were in Montreal, the Gordon-Webster Band. That was a two-night gig. The first night was the last day of October. The second night was the first day of November. So that's where I'll start. Not much more to tell that I didn't mention on Friday, but the uh, the Friday night gig was marred by poor sound. Poor uh, PA and monitor situation. Saturday, uh, November 1st, did not have those same issues and thusly the gig was a lot more comfortable a lot more enjoyable for everybody mostly the same crowd of dancers it's the same band except with a couple of surprises one surprise that Gordon had arranged Gordon is um, very savvy with his frequent flyer miles He racks them up on nearly a weekly basis. And so in moments like this, when he wants to make a little surprise happen, it's easy for him to purchase a flight for somebody with miles. So he, on almost the spur of the moment, flew up one of the singers who works with the band, Brianna Thomas. And so Brianna arrived on Saturday and was secreted into the gig as an unannounced guest she actually i'm not lying was uh someone threw a scarf over her head and she had a couple of uh liaisons sort of lead her into the performance area so nobody could see who she was so it was a nice surprise in maybe the third or fourth song on set when she was announced and came up and sang she gives the band somewhat of a different character than when Jessie's the lead singer. She's much more of a, um, well, I can't say Jesse isn't brash, but she's a brash kind of blues singer with, um, you know, the attitude of a Bessie Smith or something, uh, which is just, that's its own thing. That's its own energy, and people really like it. So she's fun to sing with. Um... The other special guest was Danny Lipschitz, who often plays saxophone in the band and wasn't on this particular gig for, I'm not sure what reason, but decided to show up anyway. Flew himself up there, or maybe he flew, maybe he drove, I don't know. But he showed up in a gorilla mask in the middle of the, like at the end of the first set or something and just like came up to the stage playing the saxophone in the gorilla mask and stayed on stage for the rest of the gig and was was uh it was fun to have two tenor saxes up there just kind of wailing killing it so saturday night that was a lot of fun we spent the night and then drove home on sunday Could not have really anticipated being out in Central Park in the month of November, but the mild fall weather did continue into November, so Tin Pan was out there on Tuesday, November 4th in the park, doing our thing, did pretty well, busking, and that evening I participated in something that I've done uh, I don't know, four or five times. And this was the 10th year of the annual benefit performance of Terry Riley's In C, arranged by Nick Hallett and Zach Layton on behalf of their concert series, Darmstadt Classics of the Avant-Garde. And to paraphrase the introduction that zack gave from the stage that night the concert series started almost as a response to like a dj culture or it was an attempt to create a space for 20th century new music in more of a hip setting or something like that i wasn't around at the time of its inception. And in fact, I have not been someone who plays at or really attends this concert series anyways, but I do enjoy participating in their NC benefit. If you're familiar with the piece, C," it's written 40 years ago by Terry Riley. The original recording is about a seven-piece ensemble can be played by any instruments any number of players there's always someone supposed to be keeping the pulse which is just playing the note C in eighth notes so often a piano player does that but it can be any instrument and if you're playing the uh, written material you can also switch to playing the pulse whenever you feel like it. So there's that sort of thread holding it together. And then the piece is constructed in a series of 52, I think, little cells. So these are roughly one measure ideas meant to be played on repeat. So if you're in cell one, doo-doo-doo, doo-doo-doo, doo 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 You play it ad nauseum until you choose to move to the next cell and the idea is you're listening to everybody around you and what they're playing and it's fine for you to be on different cells at the same time or to be playing the same cell in a staggered way but you should stay within two cells of everyone you can hear so the ensemble sort of moves through the piece roughly together and by the time we get to the end everybody's at the end together And there have been many different interpretations of this piece over the years and maybe i'm not telling you anything you don't know about it already but the general approach by nick and zach when they put this together is to have a uh, almost like rocking-type rhythm section that can play a groove and make it almost like a krautrock rock kind of performance. And it was a little bit less that this year. Uh, there wasn't a drum set. There was one percussionist, but he wasn't playing entirely regular rock beats the way we've had some years in the past. And... So we shoot for about a 45 minute performance and we probably hit that mark. There was a wind section of uh, maybe eight bunch of strings. I mean, there was, it was a large ensemble, maybe 30 people crammed onto the stage at Croissant Rouge. So there's probably a nice recording of that. I do not have it. I cannot play it for you, but it was a good opportunity to see some friends make music together there was a little blog piece about it on the LPR blog and what I had to say for that is the beauty of NC is that that it's something I can play with any musician in New York City and so there are some people in this ensemble who don't improvise or run in a different circle than I do or just things differently or whatever, or we're all busy, we don't have opportunities to play music together other than getting together to do this nice collective thing. So as Darmstadt enters its second decade, good luck to them. The following morning Tin Pan was scheduled to be out in the park again and Jesse, our intrepid leader, just moved into a new apartment and he had to wait for a furniture delivery and he couldn't make it, but he wanted us to still have the opportunity to play. Now, in years past, when Jesse couldn't do a gig in the park, um, the bass player, Pete, would takeover on singing duties but Pete doesn't play with the band anymore and there isn't anybody who really backs up Jesse on the singing well I sing you listen to this podcast you know I sing Uh, not all of these songs I don't necessarily know the words to and my voice doesn't necessarily carry the way that Jesse's does but we decided to give it a shot with me singing and playing trombone and Steven Adam playing bass and guitar, and something that I've uh, avoided doing over the years is being like with Escape from Society, for example, is playing the trombone and singing, uh, being the lead singer of the band, and then picking up the trombone and playing trombone solos. I don't, I don't know why that doesn't appeal to me it just doesn't for some reason in situations where I'm gonna be the lead singer I've usually opted to be the guitarist and or the bassist so that I have something to do with my hands and I'm not this just I guess I guess there's a nice role of playing an instrument with the band and feeling like I'm more a part of the music than Constantly being the uh, like feature of the music, since vocals, lead vocals, are always a sort of front and center thing, and then a trombone solo would be a front and center thing. I don't know. It's something I've always felt a little uh, embarrassed by, or something. So I've I've stayed away from it. But on this particular morning, that was the situation that we cast ourselves in, and. I actually didn't mind the gig went fine it was sort of a slow day in the park but we had plenty of listeners and plenty of cds cd sales and especially since we were only splitting the money three ways instead of four i think we just did two sets made our regular wage and got out of there because i had a flight to catch now, I did feel, talk about embarrassing, I did feel like a little embarrassed to be selling tin pan CDs to people who were like, oh yeah, we like this music a lot, let's buy the CD to hear it, because when they get it, they're not going to hear the, really the same music they heard in the park. If they liked my singing, they're definitely not going to hear that. If they liked any of our instrumental playing, we're not on the CDs anyway. But we did do most of the Tin Pan stuff that I know the words to. And furthermore, you know, just played some similar type of songs that I enjoy. Some Johnny Cash stuff, etc. Some stuff from what uh, Steve, the bass player, called Sam Kulick's Magical American Songbook, which is... I've done a lot of gigs with Steve and so he knows the kind of songs that I like which you know if it's a Ray Charles song it's not the Ray Charles song that everybody knows it's a bunch of NRBQ songs it's a bunch of songs by Doug Sam uh... stuff that is you know not the popular American songbook but the songs that I like the magical American songbook particular to me I like that at least for one of my musician friends that exists that concept exists And if I keep doing this, keep, you know, leading bands over the years, maybe other people will become aware of Sam Kulick's Magical American Songbook. Anyways, I flew to Europe that night. That uh, evening, I boarded a plane, and I was Europe-bound. So now we're going to talk about November European tour. This was a sort of Hydra tour. So you'll see, I was there for three weeks, but playing in many different settings. And my reason for going over on this particular day, and not the following week, was to do one gig with my old friend Elias Khan. I was in Elias's band Nervous Cabaret for several years. For a few years anyways that felt like several because we were very busy in 2007-2008 we were touring France a lot and that was something that had been built up in the years before I joined the band. The two records we released were on a French label and we had a French booking agent who really went to bat for us. So. There was always stuff for us to do over there, and we would go over sometimes as a seven-piece, as much as seven, maybe only as much as six, uh, and as little as four or three. There was a trio tour that I would do. Uh, so the size of the band sort of accordioned, but we'd have three horns usually, and uh, it was just the times were very fun. Very fond memories of Nervous Cabaret and Elias moved to Berlin in 2009 or the end of 2008 maybe and the band stopped playing after that although Elias still does a lot of the old Nervous Cabaret songs in his solo playing. So anyways, he had this gig booked outside of Lille, France. And it had been on the calendar for a long time. It was originally going to be the anchor date of a longer tour. And then some some other work came his way. He's gotten involved with this like circus company from Australia. He was in Singapore with them. Right now, this month of December, he's in uh, Munich with them. So the idea of doing a long Elias Contour was bagged, but that was something that I was gonna be involved in. And this was the one gig that still remained that he was able to do. So I said, "Oh, what the hell? I'll come over a few days early so I can do the gig. It'll be like old times. And it sort of was. Uh, we were working with a new Drummer, someone who's played with Elias like once or twice, guy who also lives in Berlin, German guy. So they needed to rehearse, and I haven't played these songs in a few years. And as far as the new songs go, I haven't played them at all. So the day we spent at the venue is a very nice kind of state venue in a small sort of suburb town outside of Lille. And Yeah, we were able to get sound checked and then spend a few hours running through tunes, running through the set. I was playing both bass and trombone. I was not too impressed by the drummer, I guess. And Brian Geltner, who was the drummer in Nervous Cabaret, sets a really high bar. He helped develop the songs, he had the way of playing them that was sort of unique to him and he just kind of kicks a lot of ass and this drummer we were working with is kind of a it's kind of a pro it's probably a good session drummer but not in a way that is like he really understands the songs and kicks ass and gets inside of them it's like he knows what the beat is and knows what the tempo is. And he's also working with a sampler, which complicates things, uh, and indicates to me a certain level of like twenty first century pro drummer guy. You know, he's got his sampler, he's got his headphones, uh, so he's playing along with the click track for some of the stuff. To me that's a, still a little bit foreign and uh and silly and i understand that when you're only playing with a trio and you want you want the song to sound more like it does on the record you're going to need to use a sample of the piano part and if you're using a sample of the piano part you're going to need a click track to stay with it but then you're also going to have to fool with your monitors And you're going to have to make other concessions so that it'll be less spontaneous, for sure. Less spirited, maybe. Just a little bit more to concentrate on and a little bit less listening to and playing with each other. Um, That's my perspective, and that's the kind of drummer we were working with. So, was it the best possible gig we could have done with Elias? No, we sort of threw it together, and it was with... A guy who I didn't think totally gets Elias's music. On the other hand, uh, the three of us did work well together and had a very enthusiastic crowd. I can't, I don't know if Elias has played in Lille in the past few years. We certainly did as Nervous Cabaret. And in the song called Mel Gibson, we used to do this clapping thing, get the audience clapping along with us. I haven't thought about that in years and Mel Gibson was in the set, it didn't occur to me at any point to start clapping or anything. We started playing the song and the audience began to clap. They were doing the clapping thing. These were like old Nervous Cabaret fans that remembered shows of the old days and this was like a thrill for them to go see the band and they remembered doing the clapping thing and I was like, wow. Mel Gibson was sort of later in the set around the time that my shoe exploded. I had brought these shoes on tour that were like my old leather shoes. I didn't want to full-on wear boots because I don't like performing in boots. But I knew I was gonna need something warm. I didn't want to bring sneakers. I like didn't have time to go out and get a nice versatile leather shoe or whatever, but I had the I had them. They're just old and had some problem in I would put them in the closet like four years ago and said, OK, these shoes will like take a rest and they'll recuperate. Well, it's not really how shoes work. And so, yeah, they had like holes in the sole of them. And that's why I had stopped wearing them. So my feet were just like wet all the time for the first couple of days of this tour. And then in the middle of the show with Elias, the right shoe just exploded. And my foot like came out of the bottom of it somehow. Uh, it was pretty silly. So then I put gaff tape on it and for a couple of days until I found a new pair of shoes. I was walking around with uh, gaff tape on my shoe, which is... uh, That's cool. That's like a nice punk aesthetic. That's not a very rock star aesthetic. Anyways, the gig with Elias was like old times. And you're hearing some of some of the old tunes so I made my way from Lille back to Amsterdam like I said To do this gig with Elias, I had gone over to Europe a little bit early, so I had a few days off in Amsterdam. is a nice place to have days off. And I was able to practice a bit during those days, which was nice. Get myself prepared for some of the um, shows on this tour coming up, many of which were solo. So I had a trombone solo. Appearance at a place called the New Anita Anita like the name and new spelled the Dutch way which is uh like N I E U W E New. Now I listen to lots of um N P R here in New York on W N Y C and something that drives me crazy is the way everybody pronounces the word new. Whether it's new as in New York or news as from uh you know now we're going to hear the news. They say New York and let's read the news as if as if the word was spelled the way it is in Dutch N I E U W E. So it's funny for me to see it in Dutch because it's like yes that's That's it, that's the word. That's why you're pronouncing it this stupid way that drives me crazy. But in English, folks, the word is new. We live in New York City. Just putting that on the record. Um, This New Anita place is a, uh, a bar, occasional restaurant. They serve food on certain nights. With my friend Jan, we went to a movie screening there the night before my gig. They have live music on Tuesdays, which is always like three or four acts doing 20 minutes each with 20 minute breaks in between. So uh, in contrast to a regular bar atmosphere, when you've got a place full of people, which the place was full of people and many people talk and disregard the band while the band is playing. Here, since the sets are going to be short, the format is that everybody shuts up and listens to the band while it plays and then goes back to talking. It's kind of a different way of, of doing things. So, I was playing the trombone solo and acoustic and... What people are used to at this venue is not solo trombone. I have a funny thing with Amsterdam, because, or Holland in general, but Amsterdam specifically, because the ICP Orchestra and some of my other favorite musicians uh, come from Amsterdam. That's where they're based, that's where they live. There's all this creative music happening there. Uh, In the rock scene, you've got the X, and you've got blah, blah, blah. And yet, they're not all that popular or well-known in their home city. I guess in the way that I wouldn't expect to walk around New York and have everybody know and like John Zorn's music. Not everybody in Amsterdam knows and likes uh, Walter Rearbos' music. But he's like the best trombone player. And... It's funny to me that I could play solo trombone for people in Amsterdam and they have no idea that this type of music exists when I'm doing something very similar to what what, uh, Walter Bierbos does and in his hometown to boot. But anyways, I might have been a space alien for what everybody there knew about solo trombone. It was just like a total anomaly and something that I think they really enjoyed. I mean, you see cell phones coming out to film a performance like this, and I never know if that's because people are really enjoying it or because they think it's totally insane that I'm a crazy person. Um, I think in this particular set, you know, I made some funny drone sounds. The nice thing about everybody shutting up is that I, I felt like I had them in the palm of my hand and could make quiet, delicate sounds for them to listen to and get my point across that way. So I did some of that. I think I played uh, my solo arrangement of the Mingus tune, Fables of Faubus, and closed the set with... um, I mean, all these things ran together. I just did one uninterrupted thing, but closed with this Jimmy Rushing song, Am I to Blame? I don't know if it's Jimmy Rushing's song, but I learned it from him from his um, appearance on Jazz Casual. So check that out. And the the way to do it with the solo trombone is to actually sing the song, but play little uh, trombone interjections in between the uh, words of the verse. And I, I like doing that, and that's also just kind of a... A unique thing. I acknowledge that it's unique, but it surprised the hell out of everybody there, and um, and so I got a uh, rousing ovation. But then everyone just kind of went back to doing their thing, and the other bands that played were a mix of just god awful singer-songwriting and um, like a really good duo. Uh, drum and bass and vocals, girl duo, that had some pretty cool songs. Um, that was the that was the scene. So it was like a worthwhile gig, and I got a piece of the door, but didn't sell any CDs or really make any contacts out of it. It was just a funny thing, bringing solo trombone music into these people's lives, which they had no idea that that exists. And uh, yeah, I guess I can feel good about that. The other gig that I had in the area, in the town of Harlem, which is just a, I don't know, it's twenty minutes away, was for people who very much know I exist. And in fact, if you were listening to the June podcast, I I had a gig at this venue, the Irrational Library, back in June, and it was a it was a short in store performance where we just sort of sat around. The table together and I played some song poems and talked about song poems and there were six people there or something but they all totally loved it they were all totally sucked in and wanted to bring me back to do a, a longer performance and they uh, you know they advertised it and gave me a guarantee and I was really happy to go back cuz they're they're pretty nice people and they seem really interested in what I'm doing and this time Unlike in June, I could have the trombone with me. So I did two sets at the Irrational Library. to set myself up in the corner. This, the store is uh, sort of mid-century kitsch and vintage clothing and records and little toys and decor. And it's, it's a real cool environment to be in, a good space. And so I was set up in a corner with lots of like videotapes behind me and some uh, ferns set up and I could just sit there and do my thing. And it, my thing, what they had asked for is almost like a lecture performance where I talked about the history of song poems. So I learned a few more song poems for this particular show some of the Gygax ones that have really complicated lyrics because he was an insane person Um, and I would talk about the uh, the history of MSR records and then I'd play an example and I'd say well you can have politically minded songs and I'd do the John F. Kennedy and Jimmy Carter says yes and Smoke It The Pot Or you could be a crazy person and play some Gygax songs and then talk about Escape from Society and what that project was all about and play some Escape from Society songs and weave some trombone playing through the whole thing. Now, by contrast to the uh, young hipsters at the new Anita, this was like the old Beardo kind of crowd who knows very much about what solo trombone music is and who who Walter Vierbos is and the ICP orchestra and everything. So, these guys are all totally hip to that. So, uh, I cannot rely on the novelty factor to uh, impress anybody. I've got to really play some good music or they're not going to like it. So, it was a good uh, encouragement to play some interesting stuff on the trombone mixed in with my song poems, and uh, it was a very casual, nice atmosphere, Uh, I like those guys, I'd go back any time. If you all are familiar with Ray Davies' um, Storytellers, that was, what he did on that and then adapted into, like, an actual TV show was sort of what I was doing on this concert. And a little bit... It's a little bit combining what the podcast is about with in in an actual live setting. It's funny to uh, appear as an authority with the uh, license to speak about song poems because, I mean, what do I really know? I only know what I know. But I can say it and play song poems and make it interesting apparently anyways moving on from Harlem where I finally found a suitable pair of shoes to wear I took a long train ride to get myself to Denmark where Tom Blancart and Louisa Dam Eckhart Jensen live for part of the year they live here in New York and they live there and I did go to Denmark a couple of years ago when they got married there. That was a lot of fun. I got to see sort of where Louisa is from. But they have an apartment in Toftland now and a young child. And So I see them often in New York and I know exactly what their life is like. But I don't know what their life is like really in Denmark. So it was great that I had the opportunity to go up there. They live in the southern part of Denmark which is very close to Germany. So in fact I took the train to Flensburg, Germany and Tom picked me up there. It's a I don't know, 45 minutes ride up to Tofland or something. Tofland is a really small town. In the morning we went to get our uh, Sunday snail pastry. This nice uh, you know kind of snail shell looking pastry from the happy Baker across the street yeah there's like a base there's there's a bakery, two little grocery stores, a library, some clothing shops that's about it It dwarfs my hometown but only like by a it doesn't really dwarf my uh, hometown. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty small place and it's pretty hilarious that they're living there and trying to be creative musicians um, but the happy baker across the street used to run the bakery in town had a few employees health department shut him down his wife left him very depressed for six or eight months had to fire his workers and then he just woke up and said I'm going to reopen the bakery and he came back and started baking things again it's just him bake stuff in the morning stays open until it's all sold closes up everyone in town loves him he's a happy guy tom thinks the health department's going to shut him down again but we'll see that's what life is like in in Toftland. the exciting uh most exciting thing in town is the re-emergence of the happy baker But like I said, Tom and Louisa are trying to make a go of it in the area, so they've gotten involved with this bass player who lives in Zonerborg which is a much larger town. It's it's like a legit college town, university kind of town. And uh, this, this bass player, Niels, has been there a long time, and he's been setting up concerts and has a good... Um, a, he has good access to state funding. And there's something in uh, Denmark about gigs. It's like against the law to pay a musician less than $300 for a gig. It's a pretty cool law. But it only applies to official gigs that are in official venues or are advertised a certain way or whatever. It's not like you can go into a coffee shop and play, and they have to give you $300. It's, it's, not, it's not quite that utopian. But the gigs that this guy, Niels, sets up typically do fall under this law. So uh, Tom and Louisa often play on them, but also often help organize them. So there's an electronic music festival called the Define Festival happening in Sonerberg and Niels was able to secure a a spot on the festival in spite of the fact that basically makes acoustic improvised music his pitch was that his like regular sort of improvising ensemble would feature an electronic music soloist He doesn't really know anybody who fits that description in the area. And Louisa was helping him organize the festival. So she suggested, because she knew I was gonna be in Europe at the time, that they get me to be the soloist. And so they did. And Louisa and I discussed, like maybe I'd bring some pedals or something. I mean, I'm not an electronic musician. I've done some stuff with trombone and pedals, Uh, it's not really my thing and in fact I would go so far as to say my my thing is consciously acoustic. A lot of the sounds I make are derived from or inspired by electronic music oscillators and blah 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 but I try to do it all acoustically that's sort of my thing so I didn't, I didn't really know what the expectation was, and communication from both Louise and Niels was, was spotty. So I didn't bring any pedals because what I just told you about how I was the electronic music soloist, I didn't know that ahead of time. I just maybe could have read between the lines and figured that out. Uh, but. I hadn't figured that out. So Tom and I are driving up to Toffland after he picked me up at the station and I was like, oh yeah, by the way, speaking of electronic music, like, I, I'm i not supposed to have, like, any pedals or anything, am I? Because I didn't bring any. And just, like, facepalm by <laughs> Tom. He was like, oh Christ. This is a disaster. So... We get back to the house and start picking through like, what electronic gear they have with them. Louisa has like a Line 6 pedal and a reverb pedal and a a Cube, a Roland Cube amp, which is what I have here in New York. And it's like, you know, it's pre- pretty useful. It actually has these built-in effects that you can use. They're not great, but they're, they're useful. And uh, another pedal they have has no power supply, so we can't use that one. And the other one is called the Jam Man. It's like a looping pedal from maybe a couple of generations ago, technology-wise. So we didn't know what we were going to do, but we we went to bed that was like, all right, well, Sam can just use the Jam Man and the Cube Amp, and like, we just won't tell anybody you can like if anybody asks you can say your pedals got fried by like the voltage in europe or something (laughs) and we didn't end up having to bullshit anybody about anything um and furthermore i had the idea that the the closest thing to electronic music that i i actually do is the western any sphere so i wrote to david first and said hey I'm sort of stuck in this situation where I have to appear to be an electronic musician tomorrow do you have any drone stuff you can send me because it would be pretty legit for me to play along with the drones and uh, do sort of what we do in the western hemisphere and and pass that off because that is something I do and that is like electronic music so he said yeah sure and he took the time to make uh, a couple of tracks to send me which uh, I managed eventually to get one of them loaded onto my iPhone and we went out and got the right cable to plug it into the, the sound system I never really had any time to practice doing what I was gonna do but the concert itself was at midnight in a library so the stakes were not that high Anyways, we got together in the afternoon. The ensemble was Louisa, Tom, who play uh, saxophone and bass, a drummer, uh, another saxophone player, a flute player, another bass player, and a guitarist. No, uh, No laptops, no DJs, no anything. But people sort of made an attempt to bring pedals or something that would make the group more electronic than it normally is. Guitarist has no problem with that, he's got a big multi-effects board. Um, The flute player just sort of set the reverb and delay on the board and just played through a mic and just left the... left the reverb and delay on let himself be electric that way. Um, but we basically spent this afternoon rehearsal time improvising together and devising a little set list of of what improvised material we wanted to cover, break the group down into s- some smaller formations. and both Niels and Louisa brought a little bit of written music for us to play. so we had we had enough pieces for the program. And I was set to do a solo at the beginning of it, which playing along with David's thing. So I had that set up, and I got some loops set up on my jam man, <laughs> or on Louise's jam man. And uh, we went out there and played in the Electronic Music Festival at the library for, I don't know, 15, 20 people at midnight. And... Uh, I enjoyed doing my solo, but there was nobody running sound, so I fear the balance between the trombone and the drone part was was not ideal, probably wasn't. Um, and the guitarist in this ensemble is one of the worst musicians I've ever played with. It was such a drag to play with him. Um, but. There were bright spots elsewhere in the ensemble, so the gig itself was not exactly a drag. It was it was kind of fun, and being able to hang out with Tom, Louisa, and their beautiful daughter, Freya, was actually a, a bit of a treat. So to spend 48 hours in Denmark, cool. Define music festival electronic thing, and like I said, it's it was a, a well-paying gig, so it was worthwhile going up there for a couple of reasons. Now, do you all know who Joachim Badenhorst is? I don't think you do. I don't think he's been mentioned on the podcast before. Belgian clarinet and saxophone player who I became friends with in New York a few years ago. He has spent time living in New York. Plays in Han Benning's trio, leads a couple of his own projects and works with a lot of different Musicians in the improvised music and and jazz world. Really talented and fun guy. I like Joachim a lot. And he leads a band called the Karate Urio Orchestra. Karate Urio is a town in Italy that there's a big lake there with an island in the middle. And this island has some connection to Belgium, like it was owned by a. King of Belgium, or something. I don't, I don't think it's sovereign Belgian territory, but there's some connection there. And um, maybe, a, maybe two years ago, Joachim had a grant from the government to go to this island and have a little residency. And so he conceived of a band and wrote music for it while he was there. And it's a seven-piece band with. Some guys from all different countries in Europe, Spain, Ireland, France, Germany, Norway. Um, And this band assembled and recorded and has done some stuff together. Now, the trumpet player in the band was not available for a tour that Joachim had planned in November, and he asked me to fill in for him, which sounded great. And that was that was the main reason for bringing me to Europe on this trip. It was going to be a, a four-day residency and five gigs with uh, Karate Urio. And it was great. Going into it, I knew Joachim Franz Lurio and Pascal Nigenkemper I didn't know the other guys in the band, but we became friends really quickly and easy collaborators. Um, I uh, fit right into what they were doing, learned the songs that they already knew, and the purpose of this residency was also to work on some new music, and Joachim brought in a few things for us to develop. So we we're set up here in Nearpelt, in another just like gorgeous state venue that has a bunch of money, a bunch of funding, and adult education, and a theater, and choreographers in residence, and all these kids running around who are being trained to be crazy sound artists, and... Uh, Clankenbos, uh, which is a sound forest. It's like a the park surrounding this venue has 17 permanent sound installations in it that just make the whole place totally magical. Near Peltis, is It's not on the way to anything. It's like this tiny little town that uh, You should go to sometime because it's got this awesome thing So we were set up there working on our music for a few days and the first gig that we had was in antwerp and that's where joachim's from and he plays there fairly often and and has a good following so it was in a, a venue called rata which is sort of like a it's a jazz venue it's a it's an official kind of uh place where like adults go. There's some cafe tables and then like a raked auditorium seating behind the cafe tables. So this was not only our first show of the tour, I was also the opening act for the band as a solo Escape from Society stuff. So I had a, you know, 40 45 minute solo set to deliver. And um I had a guitar. I had the trombone. I decided on... what tunes I wanted to do and where I wanted to work in the trombone stuff. But, uh... they were playing... the Wayne Shorter record Juju... on the house stereo... right before I played. And, uh... I guess the song Deluge was on. So I... spur of the moment just started my set by playing deluge like it faded out and i just kept playing it um i love wayne shorter i went through a big wayne shorter phase my junior i think year of college wayne is the man and it was cool that this coincidence happened and i got to kind of jam along with one of my favorite wayne recordings to start my set. The Karate Urio set was fine. Went well. Felt good to get the tour uh, underway. But we didn't have great sound on stage. And it was not the most memorable set that we played. We set the bar sort of in the middle. You know. But we had a good time. And... Then went back to Nearpelt, because there was one day left on our residency and a concert to give that night. And the concert in Nearpelt was was awesome, because we did have great sound. We had the sound that we had been working with all week, and then some, uh, some nice lighting to add to the concert atmosphere. So that was a... And that was a a concert where we got to do two sets, kind of give it all. We've got, you know, break down and give people opportunity to play smaller formations and extend the tunes. The town next to Near Pelt and Over Pelt is Ockle. one of the Trappist brewery. Where the monks have their monastery, where they make beer, is in Akel. They make very good beer. There's, you know, there's Ockel, Duvel, Orval, Vestmala, and uh, Vestvleteren. Those are the six uh, in Belgium. So here we were on a previous tour. I'd managed to get to uh, Vestmala, and now I have the opportunity to go to Akel. So. Uh, sometime in the middle of the week we took a field trip in the evening and went over to the monastery and you can see the brewing tanks through a plate glass window in this little tavern that they have set up and there's a shop where you can buy all kinds of beer not just their own but all kinds of beer from all over Belgium amazing little shop And then twice a day, they actually have a mass that the public is is welcome to attend. We happen to be there at one of those times a day. So you wait at the the, uh, gate of the monastery and the monk comes out and finds you there and leads you through the little cathedral building and into the chapel building. It was great to see the little courtyards and grounds that they have Inside the walls of this monastery. And so we were in this beautiful brick chapel, kind of gray brick, whitish gray brick chapel, all lit up. The sun was down. It was like, you know, dark and misty outside. It was just a beautiful, austere setting. And I don't know anything from Mass. I mean, if they were doing it in English, it wouldn't have meant anything more to me than it did when they were doing it in uh, Flemish but they did this mass in Flemish and gave us the little um, psalm sing-along sheets so it was like the six of us who had gone six or seven of us plus the four monks and then one woman from the community and I I was thinking that like yeah all the other monks must be somewhere else but like you can't just be somewhere else you have to go to mass that's like the whole reason you're there and someone else was like oh yeah they're almost all dead like those are the only four monks left so really maybe it's just these four monks that still live in this monastery and make all the beer and whatever else they need to make and just live there. So two of them are pretty elderly. One is completely hunched over, um, presumably from spending years of his life in genuflection. Uh, And two of them are more in middle age. And one of those is the main singer, but they all sing a little bit. And most of the songs are call and response. And like I said, we had these, we had the music in front of us. so. We were able to um, sing along a little bit and while it wasn't this beautiful choral experience that i had sort of anticipated when we started walking in it was very nice to just hear a few of these voices you know a few people's voices intoning in this uh, chapel and there was something very interesting musically happening during one of the psalms which was It was a call-and-response format, and the response had, you know, phrase, 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 with a very long pause, longer than what would be a normal breath. And everybody in in our group picked up on that and thought, wow, that was really weird. And um, we started doing that in rehearsal, where there would be a a leader, you know, there would be a priest, we called him, who would play something, and then the ensemble would respond and add a lot of space, use a, you know, use a sort of irregular pacing to the thing. And so that's something we did in, in performance on a few of the shows, including the one in in near Pelt. I forget, we, we went around the ensemble with different people leading it each time we did it, so I forget who was the priest that night, but it's a, it was a nice way to start an improvisation and maybe have it lead into one of the songs we played. By the end of tour, we were playing without a set list entirely, uh, which felt good. After Nierpelt was Dixmude, sort of on the other side of the Flanders region. Actually, it's out in Flanders Fields, where there were all these battles during World War One. Pretty area. We were playing a rock-ish club with, like, a local fusion-ish band. Not a perfect setting. I haven't really described the music of Karate Urio to you yet, but it's free improv meets kind of post rock there's singing in different languages by different members of the band on certain songs there's some very abstract music there's some electronic stuff there's some kind of doomy stuff i had a guitar the drummer had a guitar and there's a guitarist so it we could like triple up on guitars when we wanted to. There's two acoustic basses in the band so there's there's like a lot going on and it's funny that some of the shows we played are, are specifically under the jazz label because we're not playing jazz but I think the one in in Nierpelt certainly the one in Eindhoven and maybe the one in in Antwerp also were like jazz concerts. But uh, we weren't under any pressure to uh, play jazz. We just played our music. Any anyways. Being in sort of a rock club in a small town where nobody knew what to expect that was it was not like the most successful show, the one in Dixmuda. But Another nice town with great local beer and blah, 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 a good hang. A little band flat next door and a good meal. That was on a Friday night, and we didn't have really an official gig for the band on Saturday. What we had instead was the second annual Garlic and Jazz Festival, again with the jazz, right, Um, in... Antwerp, so we had just played there a few nights before, but this was going to be quite a different thing. We did not play as ourselves, and furthermore, it was the afternoon and early evening when we were playing. So for three or four hours, we took over this restaurant space. There's a large very reverberant room and then there's kind of an open kitchen with seating so people typically ate in the kitchen and sometimes we played duos and trios there in the kitchen for some things we played in the stairwell for some things we moved into the the large concrete and glass reverberant hall so everybody got to do a solo or a couple of duos and trios over the course of the afternoon. I did, again, play with David's uh, David First's drone thing. I tried that again, this time with better sound and a great setting. I was able to climb up on this concrete crossbar in front of the windows and kind of turn all the lights out and do the drone, turn it up pretty loud. So it was a more successful performance of of the drone thing there and all the food, which had garlic in it, was awesome. So we were out of there by I don't know, 7, 8 o'clock and we could go play cards, we were playing a lot of the card game, tarot, French game. And the next day we traveled to Rotterdam and played another sort of rock, punk, all-purpose type club called The Worm, which has really just the coolest uh, architecture. Lots of recycled building materials. All the seats are from airplane, like an old airplane, and the ceiling and the walls are made from airplane window tiles. and. There's like a world-class avant-garde material uh, bookshop, video shop. Sort of like what uh, Kim's used to be in New York City. Has that there. It's like a, there's a cafe. It's a cool, uh, really cool venue, The Worm. Nothing sticks out in my mind about that particular set being good or bad I think we just sort of did our thing um Rotterdam is in Holland not Belgium and Joachim had secured some Flemish government funds for taking the band to Holland so although it was a Sunday night gig that was very lightly attended we had some some money coming in some government funding uh can't get away with that here I can't <laughs> I don't think I know any any New Yorkers who are like alright I'm gonna go play a gig in Vermont like New York City government you wanna give me a couple hundred bucks for um, you know bringing the New York City music out into the country it doesn't really I haven't heard of that maybe it goes on it definitely goes on uh, in Europe so we were benefiting from that somewhat Um, final gig of the tour the next night was in Eindhoven and this was a memorable gig it was another two set affair where we were the only band and it was at Cafe Wilhelmina which has been presenting jazz concerts for decades and we had a feast there, we treated well, had a beautiful hotel next door and like I said, we had moved on to playing without a set list at this point because we're all good listeners and music you know, if a little theme comes up from somebody someone else can grab it and all of a sudden we're playing a song or it can stay in the world of free improvisation and become something new so we did two sets without a set list and, and just, we had you know good sound and a good audience a nice comfortable cafe kind of bar scene and uh i don't know we were all we all seemed to be sort of together that night and tried some different things the the first set began with with Joachim playing priest in our uh monk music game uh but he started from off stage he was like I don't know, he was in the bathroom or something. So he would play a phrase and and then we'd answer it. And uh, it was a nice little surround sound of the audience thing. And as Joachim came closer to the stage and eventually got up on stage, we were all playing together and then the set went in different directions and got to play some things. Now, there was one song for the tour that Joachim and I wrote together. He had sent me some... Ideas, um, and we actually met in Amsterdam when I was in Amsterdam the the previous week. Joachim came through, uh, maybe just because that's where his flight landed or something. He was like arriving from Portugal and on his way back to Antwerp or something. Anyways, he came through Amsterdam and we met for like an hour to discuss this song that he wanted to write. He had some musical ideas and wanted me to to help generate the the text and he wanted me to sing the song whatever the result was going to be. So for that week I had sort of sat with the the demos on some of my long train rides and Joachim was thinking that the song was maybe going to be about a ship captain talking about what he's done telling a tale and maybe it's uh, maybe there's some dark stuff in the tale or he, he didn't, didn't really know didn't specify much but I, I said alright and thinking about that came to mind uh, an ancestor of mine named Hunking Penhallow Hunking Wentworth Penhallow who was a ship's captain in Portsmouth, New Hampshire back in late colonial and or early American early United States times you know around the turn uh, of the 18th to the 19th century and I don't know much about him but I, I did have a great uncle who was a family historian who wrote some memoirs and family history and stuff and it makes mention of hunking. Penhallow and that he was a ship captain he was a ship's captain in Portsmouth and at one time when there was no work to be had he just rounded up some of his friends and they walked as far west as they could go killing as many Indians as they could encounter very uh, shameful action that probably was not entirely um, eye-raising, eyebrow-raising at the time. Uh, and I don't know how... I, I don't really know any of the details of his trip, but that's, that's what I know about Hunking Penhalo is, is that. So um, I just uh, made up some more parts of the story and wrote a song from his perspective. And there's, I, I don't know, there's a lot to unpack there, and it was, it's tough to get at all of the complexities of, uh, you know, what's happening in a, in a new country, and you're out of work, and maybe there's some internal politics of your own hometown that cause you to want to leave and kill people, and there's an enemy around, so there's, there's people who are like very established as as the enemy that you can go kill and so you can just go do that uh, and it's sort of the frontier land and then 200 years have gone by and someone like me can look back at that and say what the fuck and so what's what's history's opinion of you and anyways some these are the themes that I was uh, working into the song and we did it, I think, on on every show with me singing. Like I said, other guys in the band sing too. So there was a, one song sung in French, one song sung in Catalan, one song sung in Flemish, and uh, the song that Sean sings might be in Celtic or something. I don't even know what language he sings his song in. Uh, it's a cool that's a that's a really cool aspect of the band but um anyways that was my contribution to the the material and and we did it in eindhoven like we did on other nights and our plan is to record in february and like i said i came on to this tour as a as a sub for the trumpet player but from this point forward i think i'll just be added to the band because it was such a good fit These guys are great, great to hang out with. Um, I like the music we're doing. And and Joachim is basically connected to everyone else in the band by uh, a different, smaller project. So there's just a a lot of experience playing with each other and a lot of uh, trust and and security and uh, excitement within the band. So there's your uh, Karate Urio tour. With Belgium and Holland and all my buddies behind me, I moved forward to a gig in Cologne with a couple of expatriate Americans, Nathan Bontranger and Brad Henkel, who have formed a trio with a local German violinist by the name of Axel. And I We'll take a moment to point out that while booking this tour, these gigs for myself, it was only Nathan, the American, who was like actually responsive to me. It would take days for me to get email responses if any came at all. It's tough to set this stuff up, so I appreciate Nathan being so responsive and then setting up a show for us to play. It was in a Luthier's shop in Cologne, and we set it up to be, the trio would play, Nathan and Brad's trio with Axel, um, and then I would do a solo set, and then we would do one piece together. So nice format for a show, very relaxed, atmosphere the 15 20 people came in nice uh since it was a luthier's shop that makes violins basses cellos and stuff uh they had a a little violin as the donation box put your money through the f-hole for the musicians and for your drinks and snacks and then they opened up the violin and got the money out at the end of the night to give to us. Um, This was... Of the solo shows I played, this was... the one where I felt... I don't know, somehow the least... in tune with myself or... um, in touch with my audience. I can't put my finger on... why. For one thing, the... Well, there may be a couple of reasons. For one thing, the um, the band that, the trio that played, they played some really awesome stuff. So I may have been a little intimidated by how good they played. Um, I also had a bit of a cold sore on my lip at the time. And so through the last couple of gigs on Joachim's tour and, and for this one, I was a little bit trying to nurse that so I didn't feel at the top of my game with the horn really that may have had something to do with it but I liked the audience and I liked the space and what I devised to do was start the performance with uh, David's drone thing so for the third time on tour I was trying this out and it worked okay but it was a I don't know that's Playing along with a pre-recorded track is something that I think can't be done spur of the moment as well as uh, the other things that I do. Because without without the ability to really sound check or without anybody running sound, um, it just... uh, it might not work and so i don't know if it totally worked anyways it's this you know this 15 minute drone thing happening and what i do to play with it is play the different notes that are in the overtones of of the drone and so i play them in tune with the drone and i play them out of tune with the drone which creates different tones and in this for this show which i was not Playing through a microphone, I just had the thing coming over some speakers. Uh, I moved around a little bit within the audience. They were seated, and I I started playing on a on a stool in front of them, and then sort of moved in between the people, hoping that they would get the sensation of surround sound and and really. And I'm. Uh, I don't know how successful i was it was it was hard to gauge and and um the times that i did the piece and was really in touch really like in touch with it uh i knew internally my clock was really well calibrated to how long 15 minutes was and when it was going to fade out in this case I wasn't as in tune with it and so I kind of didn't know when it was going to fade out and I had the the arc that I built myself for the piece, I had sort of finished the material that I wanted to get through probably at about the 12 minute mark and so I just started playing some other stuff and then the dra- drone faded out and I kept on playing this other stuff and turn that into a little set uh so that, i don't know i didn't do it all that well um and then i got the guitar out and it was nathan's guitar which is a classical guitar nylon string guitar and i like nylon strings but with with guitars like this the strings are spaced out they're farther apart from each other and i don't have a lot of experience playing them so my guitar playing isn't as good either, so then when I sat down and started playing some song poems and Escape from Society songs uh... I had to fight my guitar technique a little bit, because my guitar technique is is not very good, and when I have a an instrument that I'm unfamiliar with, it, it might end up getting a little worse. So I had these things to contend with, but there was one moment that Is going to be hard for me to forget about the show, which is a song that you would have heard in the podcast episode a a couple of months ago, maybe the August episode, after Eric Garner's death here in New York City at the hands of a, literally the hands of a police officer who choked him to death on the street, on video. Um, I wrote a song expressing some of my frustrations about that. I had basically forgotten about the song. I'd never performed it, but the day of this concert in Cologne was the day that the grand jury in Ferguson decided not to indict officer Darren Wilson. Upsetting and led to some some rioting back home that I was aware of from from looking at the news. So uh because of that i remembered oh i have this this song that i wrote i should do it it's got a lot of words how am i going to remember the words well the song is very from the heart and i didn't write anything that i didn't mean and it was easy to remember the words cuz it's a lot of words but it's it's how i feel it's really true it's really honest coming from me so uh, it actually wasn't hard to think that that evening and remember what the words are and then do the song. And uh, I had something happen to me that has never happened before, which I, I almost brought myself to tears when I started playing this song and just the emotion of it got to me. And I have maybe... Been in tears twice in the last five years or something. I really I cry very seldomly, um, and I've never cried while playing, and certainly not while performing. And even I remember going to a concert in New York uh, many years ago. Somebody took me to see a a cellist, kind of a singer-songwriter cellist, and she was singing you know like breakup songs but made herself cry and had to stop the performance for a few minutes to compose herself and then start going again and at the time I did not respect her for that I thought it was uh, I mean maybe I didn't like her music very much but I thought it was like come on, you gotta, you gotta get it together, you're a performer here, uh, I don't know if, if I've ever, like, been so moved by something that I was doing that, that I've been on the border of, uh, of tears, but I was in this moment doing this song, and I, I don't know if anybody picked up on that because I kept it in check, but it really affected me, and, uh, so now, by the time I'm recording this podcast, Eric Garner's grand jury decision has come back without an indictment, and it's a continual source of anger and frustration and sadness for me. Uh, so, I don't know. What can I say? I, I I won't include the song again here. You can go back and listen to, to it on the other episode, or you can find it on... SoundCloud, but it's, it's just it's an upsetting situation, and uh, I guess I have maybe a, a little bit of newfound empathy for singer-songwriter girl who was making herself cry all those years ago.
1: Song's song called Alice's Restaurant. It's about Alice and the restaurant. But Alice's Restaurant is not the name of the restaurant. That's well, I finished the my set. We had song. our collaborative piece that um,
0: involved me reading some Walter Benjamin text in German, which I do not speak. You and having the other members of the ensemble sort of berate me for a German and then us end up you playing all together interesting little uh, conceptual piece melded with improvisation there was right a squ- actually during the band, time I was reading they were playing off, the off the a score and then by the, the time I started playing we were improvising together, together. the the uh, lone CD sale I made that night it was from a woman who walked in to the shop well after the music was over It was her birthday. She was drunk. She was with her man, and she saw my CD on the table and said, "Buy this for me." And she gave her man, you know, her wallet and took ten euros out and gave it to me. Easiest CD sale I've ever made, and probably the least deserving one. But maybe I designed a good uh, cover for the CD. I don't know. That was Cologne. I had one more of show of my north European north tour and it was in Dresden of sort of on the other side the of Germany down. In 2009 I was on so tour with a band called sun, a Capillary Ghost Action. Dump, it was a very to long tour we had never uh, five months, before, more than a hundred shows, much of that in Europe and the the label that had released the Capillary Action album was this German label, Discorporate Records. I hadn't had anything to do with the album. And in fact, John, who leads the band, had never face-to-face met Johannes, who ran the label. So at the part of the tour where we got to Germany and the Czech Republic, we met Johannes and toured with one of the other bands on Discorporate label the season standard so we did I don't know we were together for feels like it was two weeks could have been a little less I, I don't know but we got to know Johannes and the other people involved in the Discorporate label during that time spending a little bit of time in in Dresden Uh, and then all this time on the road with them. And I cut my ties with uh, Capillary Action after that tour, but kept in touch with the discorporate people in Dresden. I've been there a few times with Taliban. Um, Once I spent about a week there,
1: maybe
0: was I even on tour? I can't remember um... but over the years I've been able to hang out in in Dresden with these discorporate people and thanksgiving was going to be coming up during this tour and I had this fantasy that I would spend it in Dresden with my homies there and have a lovely Thanksgiving experience, import the American Thanksgiving style into their happy German lives. And it just so happened that they had a show booked at a venue in Dresden. Some of the guys, just corporate guys who were in a couple of bands together, Tarentatech and Osus Kroll, had a show booked that night at a venue night of Thanksgiving, so I got myself added to that show as support, and realized my dream. Came to Dresden, made a big Thanksgiving feast, listened to Alice's Restaurant, hung out with the Germans, ate a little bit of uh, their style food, some of our style Thanksgiving food, feasted early in the day, and then went to Ostpol for the gig. Sort of a an old East German relic kind of venue that still has its old coal furnaces, still has some East German banknotes tacked up behind the bar, stuff like that. Good vibe. Smoking venue, the only one of those I encountered on tour, I believe. So I did a set of music with the guitar first, and then Osis Kroll played, and then I did a set sort of out in the lounge of solo trombone, led people back into the hall, jammed a little bit with Torrentotech, and then Torrentotech played their set, and I sat in for one song with them, and the. The whole experience was totally lovely, as it is every time I go there. These guys are great. And um, my set of songs included some of the Thanksgiving esque song poems and songs of my own. Things that have to do with Indians, or thanks, or food. You know, that's enough for me to qualify it as a Thanksgiving related song. I did those and I also did some of my Christmas songs, which any day now will be arriving in the mail. Our copies of Yule Nog 10. I'll devote time in the uh, December podcast to tell you more about Yule Nog. For now, I'll play you one of the songs from Yule Nog 10 as a little teaser. And as a uh, stimulation for you to go out and get your own copy. Help us make our money back. So this is a tune I did at post poll since it was Thanksgiving Day, the official beginning of the Christmas music season.
2: Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is my name. Drinking a lot of liquor is my game Whatever thoughts you have in your head They're the wrong reason my nose is red Don't believe that fool girl lives Everything he told you is lies Living at the North Pole stinks There's nothing to do but sit around and drink It's time that you heard the truth It's got something to do with vermouth been drinking since the day I plopped out That's what my life's been all about I know I need to change and I know
1: there's a solution I think that it can happen if I make a resolution There's six days left to spread a little cheer I want another beer but I'll quit next year
2: My nose, it's shine. That's why I drink it all the time. I've got a reputation to perpetuate. All the delivering toy shit can wait. I'll tell you about that famous night, cause it's time you heard the story right. Santa thought that I was clean, and he wanted me to lead his team. Rodolph, with your nose so bright. Won't you ride my sleigh tonight? I told him I was up to the task Even though I was drunk off my ass
1: I know I need to change and I know there's a solution I think that it can happen if I make a resolution There's six days left to spread a little cheer I want another beer but I'll quit next year <laughs>
2: tell you not to drink and fly, but you know I've never tried it dry. My stocking's full of all the cheap stuff, and when it's gone it never was enough. The fog had me filled with fear, so I drank a half a case of beer. Got drunk enough to not give a fuck. The fact that we didn't all die was pure luck. We got off to a rocky start that Like a shopping cart. Visibility was at an arm's length. But my peppermint schnapps gave me strength. I've been smoking marijuana.
1: Oh, come on, what's the matter? Write your
2: own goddamn song. Oh, but I like my goddamn song. Goddamn stoner, Jesus. Come on, man, I wanna sing about smoking pot. You can't have this many deer in a recording studio. Oh, you don't smoke pot, right? Where was I? Oh. The rest I can barely remember. I was dead, blind, drunk that whole December. I blacked out flying through Nebraska. Off a roof in Alaska in Florida. I got the shakes, and I probably pissed on all 50 states. But I tell you that we made it back. And said I had an empty sack. We had a huge party that night. I got the elves, trashed, it was a sight. And now you've heard the whole story. What do you think of me now?
1: To change, and I know there's a solution. I think that it can happen if I make a resolution. There's six days left to spread a little cheer. I want another beer, but I'll quit next year.
2: Yeah, I'll quit next year. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Alright, so day after Thanksgiving, I fly back to the U.S. One of the great experiences of my life. We flew over a volcano in Iceland. That's right, saw a volcano from outside the airplane window. Pitch dark outside, 30,000 feet elevation. Pilot tells us to look down off the right side of the plane to see this volcano. And sure enough, there's a big fissure in the earth with a bunch of magma running out of it unbelievable totally unbelievable i had just been talking about how i wanted to see a volcano someday and then bang so that was a real gift i was home for a night and then had to get in the car and drive up to boston for a gordon webster gig we actually drove up and then drove back in one shot, so it was a pretty straightforward operation. Once again, plagued by incompetent sound man. So aside from the fact that I was jet lagged and totally blitzed, uh, I was a little disappointed that I couldn't get decent sound reinforcement but the gig went off well band had a good time together plenty of dancers in a big nice space we got home early in the morning without having crashed and without having to deal with post Thanksgiving traffic returning to New York City there you go that's the month of November Look forward to December where you'll get some more Nog action. Merry Christmas to you all. And uh, yeah, enjoy the fruits of the season. See you pretty soon for the final 2014 episode of the podcast. Look for that early in the new year.